Hey everybody, uh, before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to say thank you so much to everyone who has listened to the first episode, all of you who have come up to me in clubs and uh, in wherever over the last month and a half or so. Um, I really appreciate all of the amazing feedback and commentary, and I'm so glad that you are all uh, getting something out of this uh, history of drag exploration that we're doing. I do want to say that I know a lot of you were um, wondering when this episode was ever coming out. I've gotten a lot of questions recently, and I totally understand that. Um, Unfortunately, I am only one person, and this is one of two projects I'm doing right now that are long-term, time-consuming, and pay me no money at the moment. So, As much as I am trying my best to get these out as consistently as possible, the best thing that you can do to help me do that is I have now created a Patreon for this podcast uh, so that hopefully what I can do is as people start to donate more, that money will help me to hopefully take at least maybe one day off a month from work to focus on just recording, editing, et cetera, the podcast because the recording doesn't take that long, but the editing, because I am someone who stutters, I um, I ah, I huff and puff, I don't breathe super well, um, and I have a brain that goes off on tangents a lot. So there's a lot of editing that goes into the podcast, not to mention double-checking dates, double-checking names, double-checking details, facts. Um, was the movie that I'm talking about, did it come out this year that I spoke about or whatever? There's a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes work that goes into this podcast because I do not want any of this to ever go out and have half-truths or sort-ofs in there that end up getting taken up by people as real history. So that said, uh, I have donation levels at $1, $5, 10 and $20 right now. I'm happy to add different levels or add different uh, rewards to the structure that I have right now. But yeah, basically this is uh, the most direct way that you can support this podcast and support uh, more of this drag history going out. So if there's anything that you would like to see on um, the level, on the tiers, uh, as far as thank you gifts that you're not seeing, uh, I would be more than happy to take recommendations on that. But that said, I'm going to go ahead and jump on into the podcast. The Patreon is patreon.com slash untucking the past, and it is live right now. Uh, So go check it out and sign up at one of the donation levels. And uh, hopefully the next episode will be out way sooner than the last one. So here we go on episode two. Hey everybody, and welcome to Untucking the Past with your host, me, Dr. Lady J, the world's first doctor of drag with a dissertation on the history of drag. It's entitled From the Love Ball to RuPaul, the Mainstreaming of Drag in the 1990s, and you can download it for free and read the whole thing at www.theonlyladyj.com, where you can also find my Facebook, Instagram, uh, videos, I'm working on a drag reading list and a drag viewing list with uh, sort of little reviews and information about all of those things. I'm not sure when those will be done, but they are in progress at the moment. Uh, so I'm working on some cool resources for y'all, for anybody who wants to look further into drag history than we're going to get into in the podcast, because there's only so much I can do in 30-minute chunks. 
So today's episode is the second episode. It's called Battling Bigotry with Balls. And basically what we're going to be talking about today is the ballroom scene. If you've seen the TV show Pose or if you've seen the documentary from the early 90s, Paris is Burning, um, or if you've ever heard of Willie Ninja, Pepper LaBeja, Dorian Corey, Crystal LaBeja, etc. The list goes on. So if you're familiar with any of that stuff, the ballroom scene that's featured in those shows and movies is what we're going to be focusing on today and how that ballroom scene came about and how that was a response to racism within the drag scene. Because what a lot of the things we're going to be looking at in this podcast going forward and like we did in the first episode is not only how drag affects the outside world, which we're going to get to huge ways that drag affects music, fashion, politics, gender theory at the academic level, like a zillion billion different things that drag influences um, over the course of this podcast. But I do like to also really focus in on how drag's history works in its own little biosphere, because that is really the thing that we have uh, as queer people and as drag performers, very little of our own history of. So if you don't know what a drag ball is, you might have heard it used in a couple of really different ways. So in the sense that we're going to be talking about today, drag balls are something that was created specifically by black and later Latinx performers to counteract a world of a lot of racism and competitions in the white part of the drag world that was essentially the mainstream of drag at the time. But going back further than that, drag balls were originally integrated competitions in the 1920s, 1930s, going back even further than that. But they get really, really big in the 30s because this thing called the pansy craze, which again, we're going to definitely have to come back to that on its own separate episode. But essentially the pansy craze is, if you ever heard of like in the 20s when um, sort of everything artistic was blossoming in Harlem, Uh, as far as like black poetry and black music and all this kind of thing, uh, like white high society elite wanted to go down and consume that, appropriate that, and sort of just observe or in a sort of um, slumming it slash we're observing like the cool things that the people who aren't like us are doing. Uh, So that same kind of thing happens with gay people in the 30s with the pansy craze. It's also one of the reasons why, along with a few others, and again, that's a whole other episode, but it's one of the reasons why, like, if you go and look for old sheet music from the 30s, you're very likely to run across things like uh, pieces by that were performed by Francis Renault. You're likely to see Julian Eltinge, who was probably bigger than RuPaul has ever been, if you consider the time period. But again, Julian Elton is another thing we'll come back to another day. So the 20s and 30s, drag had gotten really, really big uh, in New York, especially. And so this pansy craze was going on. And these big balls would be really, really extravagant sort of drag competitions that involved like a big processional uh, competition and a dance where partners would partner off in masculine-feminine pairings that varied gender-wise across the spectrum as far as who was actually participating in those. So it might be like 
a butch lesbian and a high femme uh, drag performer, or it might be a femme lesbian and a butch performer. It could be any number of those kind of things that could appear to be uh, a masculine-feminine pairing that's more typical. And so they'd be these huge masquerade parties with competitions uh, and in the 20s and 30s, they were actually integrated. Uh, black and white performers were pretty competitive. But then as time goes forward through the 40s, 50s, etc., the same kind of extreme racial divisions that were happening everywhere that led the civil rights movement to happen, the same kind of changes that were happening in the drag world as well. So drag also became much more racist, much more segregated over time, all of that. So these 20s and 30s parties, like I said, the the straights loved them for a while uh, until the police decided they didn't like how much the fairies were taking over parts of New York and flaunting themselves. So this was also part of why they started crackdowns and uh, laws about how many articles of clothing of the same sex that you have to be wearing. But again, that's stuff we're going to get into another episode. So uh, those pageants and balls continued in many cities across the country, but over the years they became less and less integrated. And when black competitors even decided to that it might be worth entering a competition, they were expected to lighten up and whiten up their skin in order to be competitive. And even when they were competitive, they weren't likely to win. And actually, you can see this kind of referenced in Paris's Burning if you've seen it before, and if you haven't, I'm actually going to play a line from the movie from Dorian Corey that gets to this. And Dorian Corey, for those who only know her, it, uh, some of I'm sure many of you don't know who Dorian Corey is at all. Uh, I know a lot of you are new to drag stuff. Um, but then on top of that, if you've ever seen Paris is Burning, you know that Dorian Corey, even though she's a very central figure in the movie, she is not really given the depth that her character really deserves. So Dorian's story goes way back like pre-Stonewall. Dorian in the 1960s was part of an all-black drag troupe that toured all over called the Pearl Box Review. And they were also featured, well, she was a snake dancer. And they were featured on an album in 1972 called Call Me Mister, M-I-S-S-T-E-R. And I have not been able to listen to the entire thing because it's a double album. But the half that I've heard is basically like, I think it's the, there's one half of the album that's uh, like a party album and one half that's the serious side of us. And it's basically them talking about their status as gay people in the uh, 1970s. And it's actually really, really interesting. And I would highly recommend seeking it out. Uh, There's at least that half of it is on SoundCloud. I think the rest of it might be out there on the internet somewhere, but I have not managed to uh, track down the first half of that. But yeah, she was also part of the, like the Pearl Box Review, like I was saying, and her house was one of the first houses of the ballroom scene to be established. So that's all to say that basically Dorian has been in the drag game long enough to remember well what it was like to compete in the world before the balls, after the balls started, and as the balls progressed. So when you hear this this quote, you'll sort of con- you can contextualize it in that. And for the quote coming up, um, I know a lot of you are definitely too young and may also just be not as plugged into the history of pop culture to know who Lena Horne is. Um, so Lena Horne is a black actress in, well, black actress, singer, um, multi-talented entertainer, uh, who was extremely popular with black and white audiences in the forties, 
um, and also going forward in the 50s and 60s. But her big heyday was the 1940s. So th- and that's there's a ton more to know about her as a civil rights activist and all kinds of things. But all that you really need to know that's important for this quote is that she was the things that I just said. Because Dorian Corey is also, for those who have not seen Paris is Burning, Dorian Corey is also a light-skinned black performer. And again, she's older, so the reference to Lena Horne would be much more relevant for her than it would have been for, you know, any of the younger performers we see in Paris is Burning. So I'm going to just play that now. I've been to several balls, and they've actually had categories. Dynasty. You know, once you look like Alexis. Or Crystal. When I grew up, you want to look like Marlena Dietrich, Betty Grable. Fortunately, I didn't know that I really wanted to look like Lena Horne. Nobody wanted to look like Lena Horne. Everybody wanted to look like Marilyn Monroe. So you can see that even in something like Paris is Burning, that isn't really handling a lot of things correctly. Uh, Again, that's something we'll have to come back to for another episode. But even in that, uh, you still, even though they're not really explaining to you Dorian's story and where she's coming from, you at least get a little glimpse into that bit of racism in a line that almost passes. But like she says, when she grew up, black stars were stigmatized. Uh, Nobody wanted to look like Lena Horne. You know, so this is one of the reasons why we get to sort of the boiling point that is featured in the documentary The Queen in 1967. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. So as the years went by, going back to before the ball scene comes about, black queens did start having their own balls. Uh, and that, occur- that occurs a while before houses and the ballroom scene as we know it actually takes shape, which is starting in 1972 with the founding of the first of the houses. So separate black balls start occurring a while before the ballroom scene coalesces. And what may have been the first of these was put together by Marcel Christian in 1962. Marcel later adopted the LaBeja last name, same as Crystal and later Pepper, after the House of LaBeja came into existence. So now we get to sort of the big bang moment of the ballroom scene, the founding of the first house. So I know many of you may be familiar with Crystal LaBeja's name because a few seasons back, Aja uh, on RuPaul's Drag Race portrayed Crystal in Snatch Game and used a lot of her iconic lines, but I feel like still people don't really understand exactly how significant and how important uh, some of those moments that were being referenced really are. So Crystal in the 60s was major as a New York queen and had grown really tired of trying to compete within the racist pageants of the day. So LaBeja was a powerhouse on her own already. She had won queen of Manhattan and was also one of the only black queens who had won queen of the ball at a white pageant. And originally Crystal's name was Crystal LaAsia, but because of her incredible beauty, some uh, Latinx queens started calling her La Bajeza. And she ended up changing her name to LaBeja. So that's how her name changes. And then what I want to do... So basically, we have kind of the pre-leading up to this moment. So again, houses don't exist the way that we think of family structures and all that in the drag world don't exist in exactly that way at this point. And Crystal is just competing again in one of these racist pageants. And keep in mind, this is the late 60s. So the civil rights movement has just gotten a lot of achievements in the bag recently. And again, like I stressed in the first 
first episode, these are moments that we need to remember are also going to influence the minds of queer people too. And I think Crystal was frankly just fed up entirely with being treated like garbage by white pageants and seeing queens that were clearly her inferiors beating her because they were white. And people were being allowed to make money off of her presence in the competition because she had a following. She had people who thought she was amazing. She had supporters. So having her in the pageant isn't just like, oh, they're just allowing her, whatever. It's like, no, you're being used, especially in this film, because you are beautiful in all this. So the film I'm referencing is a documentary that's actually being re-released right now. It just came back to some theaters starting June 28th. And for any of my Cleveland area listeners, uh, it is going to be here at the Cinematheque on September 5th and September 9th. And I am going to try and get as many queens as possible together to go to this movie when it comes here. Uh, because it is an incredible piece of drag history. So the movie is called The Queen, and it was filmed in either 67 or 68, and released, uh, I believe, in 68. Yeah, it was filmed in 67, and then and then released in 1968. And it is basically the lead-up to and the competition of a pageant um, in New York. And there were several celebrity hosts. These were regular pageants that... Uh, Mother Flawless Sabrina, uh, then just known as Flawless Sabrina, was putting together in New York. And she'd had like Judy Garland as a guest judge on other ones. She'd had huge stars. And in the one in the movie, the biggest star is Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol is one of the judges in the film. And, uh, you know, when you re, if you watch it uh, or if you watch some of the clips online, you'll see him there. Um, and we'll be coming back to Andy Warhol a lot because his factory and the drag queens and trans women that were his superstars were some of the most influential drag happenings and people for a very 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 long time despite the fact that in most ways Andy Warhol was just using people and treating them as dispensable disposable people So at any rate, the Queen documentary comes out in 1968, and it's essentially documenting this one pageant in New York, hosted and put together by Flawless Sabrina. And when the winners are announced at the end, uh, towards the end of the film, and Crystal LaBeja comes in third, she walks off stage. Crystal takes this moment before the cameras and takes a huge risk in calling out the pageant system for being rigged for Harlow, a younger white queen who I think most people viewing this moment uh, when you see the film or when you see the footage will see with your eyeballs that there is no comparison to Crystal LaBeja between her and this Harlow girl. And like I said, LaBeja had already been proven as a powerhouse. Harlow was not that big of a, of a deal. Although you can see uh, the person who played Harlow, I believe, as Harlow in a couple of other films if you follow the IMDb trails that lead away from the Queen documentary. So what I want to do now is I want to play this moment and then I want to talk about what's happening in it. What I want you to really hear in this clip is... When Flawless Sabrina says, you're showing your color, and that's when Crystal Abasia says, I am showing my color, I have a right to show my color, and it's, all of that isn't just about her, you know, supposedly showing her, her butt in the way that she's acting, that all has to do with racism, and I think it's really important to keep in mind that whatever you're feeling about 
how this conversation might sound today, that this was 1967. Uh, racial tensions had been very high for a while at this point. And there's a reason why the moment that comes after this, in which the entire ballroom scene is founded, happens. And a lot of it has to do with this moment as a culmination of the same thing that had been happening in this drag scene for ages, where black queens were working their butts off to be the best, and no matter what they did, they were being shut down. So you can imagine this night that we're about to hear the end of the evening play out. Crystal knows that this is being documented for a film, uh, as does everyone in the film. And she's starting to feel used by Sabrina in the making of the film and in money being made off of her name. And she's also just fed up with dealing with racism in pageant after pageant after pageant. And this is just the last of many straws, especially knowing that this is going to be turned into a feature film. So now let's go ahead and play that clip, and then we're going to talk about that here in just a sec. She is not beautiful, has no qualification, and she's body sacked. Darling, she didn't deserve it. Answer me. You're not speaking from the damn camera. You have a mind. Do you think she deserved it? You know she did. All of them, the judges knew it too. But she was terrible. And her explanation for why she wanted the money to put it in the bank. (laughs) She's not getting any money because Sabrina is not going to pay her. They're good friends. It's only publicity and it's bad publicity for Holland and all the rest because I'm declared as one of the uglier people of the world. And next time she should drop the outfit off at the cleaners before she wears it on stage. She better get the hell back to Philadelphia because she's one of the worst. And where's Miss Sabrina? I will sue the bitch. I will sue. No, I didn't sign any And if she releases any bitch on me, I will sue the fool. She won't make money off of my name, darling. She can make it off of Harlow and all the rest of the fools that will flock to her. But not Crystal, darling. Anybody but her. You can take all the pictures you want of me, but I better not see them on the street because it's over. Um, get a picture with me and Harlow and see which is more beautiful, darling. The judges didn't have any taste. It was with you that the judges was with, darling. You were in it. It was all week, two weeks. Monique told me not to come. That's why Monique is not here in dress because she's one of the... Monique, darling. Monique was not here as a friend of yours. She's a friend of mine, darling. Monique, would you tell her why you didn't come? Because she knew it's Victor Holler. She said, Crystal, darling, don't go. That's right, that's because you're not going to get it. And that's why all the true beauties oh didn't come. You. It's in bad taste and you're showing your colors. You're showing I am. I am doing it bad, but I got a, I have a right to show my color, darling. I am beautiful and I know I'm beautiful. Don't tell her about you showing no color. May I say this to you? Taking the wrong way. Shit, she looked bad. And no way of what you think can do about it. Look at Holler. But they tell me, Sabrina, that you had it fixed for Harlow. Everyone knew about you having it fixed for Harlow for weeks and weeks. No, we listened to you. I listened to every word you had to say. Now, wait a second. Hold it. 
There's a party after here. Every one of the judges is going to be there. You may feel perfectly free. I'll coach over myself, and you can talk to each one of them. Most of those people I never saw before in my life. I don't know them. I went down to the Dom one... Wait a second, dear. You listen to me. I went down to the Dom one night, trying to influence Mr. Warhol to come up here as a judge. We sat down there for two hours and couldn't even get an audience with Andy Warhol. He's running around his factory making a movie or something. Everybody goes out. What'd you say? Everybody go out. Everybody go outside. Everybody go outside. Show us other quarters. Out. Out. Everybody out. Let's go. So contextualizing this moment, basically what we're looking at here is when Sabrina comes at Crystal and after everybody's saying, calm down, calm down, essentially, Sabrina says to her, you're showing your color. And Crystal fires back at her, I have a right, I am showing my color, I have a right to show my color because I'm beautiful and I know I'm beautiful. Because this plays into exactly what we've been talking about. The fact that queens like Crystal, no matter how talented they were, no matter how capable they were of winning things like Queen of Manhattan and occasionally winning white racist balls, knowing that no matter how hard you work, that in this feature film, you're going to fall, you're going to be made to look like you're not the best when you know you are, and you're going to be made to look like a fool is what she felt like, and by a racist system that she was just completely and utterly exhausted with. But basically, what I want to get at it with this clip, really, is when Crystal goes off here, just remember to contextualize this in in your mind within the swirling world of racism within the drag community of the 1960s and the world at large in the 1960s. You know, the queer world, just like today, people are often dumbfounded by the idea that gay people can be racist. But I think it's really important to remember that if someone is raised in a racist way, or whatever reason racists believe racist things, they're just racists, or they're filled with hate, or a thousand other stupid reasons, and they just happen to be gay, the likelihood that that's somehow going to magically counter or fix the fact that they were raised in some kind of a racist way or with racist beliefs by itself is a fallacy. And in a world where uh, gay culture and gay people have become very assimilated into mainstream culture in a lot of certain sectors of society and where many gay people are part of suburban society at this point and gay marriage has been legal for a while, it's very easy for some of those people whose lives have adjusted in a very different way over the last 20 years or so to see the burdens and problems of black queer people. And so, you know, I think that allows people to sometimes not think about the way that racism functions very differently than homophobia in a lot of different ways. So, you know, this is something that's been a big problem. And this is before Stonewall by about two years. And I think it's so important that we remember that Stonewall and the ballroom scene coming into existence both take place around the same time. And that's for a reason. Queer folks were fed up and had seen the civil rights movement making a difference for black people. And they had seen a difference being made for people in the gay community by the beginnings of an early gay rights movement that had been building up 
uh, through the 50s and early 60s. But queer folks were not only fed up with things that were going on in the outside world, it was, you know, a lot of things that needed to be dealt with within the queer community. And just, you know, remember those two things are really going to be big themes in this podcast in general as we look through more and more history. And it was after this moment uh, captured on film that another Harlem queen named Lottie approached Crystal about the idea of creating her own pageant uh, outside the white competitions. And initially, Crystal was basically like, mm, I'm not so sure. Then she kind of sold it to Crystal on the idea of forming houses and of Crystal being a mother of one of these houses and of the idea of the pageant being essentially devoted to Crystal the first time, putting her front and center. And so basically, Crystal at that point was like, yeah, sounds good. And this is initially how the creation of the House of LaBeja uh, comes to be and how the very first pageant, which was Crystal and Lottie LaBeja present the first annual House of LaBeja ball at Up the Downstairs Case, took place on West 115th Street and 5th Avenue in Harlem, New York. And that is the very first of the balls along with the houses, the way that we think of them today. Although, like I said, it is important to remember that some black balls that had become, that had separated out on their own as their own separate entities had already started a little bit earlier with Marcel Christian, who becomes Marcel LaBeja uh, after these houses are created. And so if you don't know what houses are, essentially drag houses are a group of people with a mother or a father and houses um, and the ballroom scene. I think it's very important to remember that the ballroom scene is not just drag drag and drag. Isn't the ballroom scene. The ballroom scene kind of envelops a lot of different things at a ball, a ball, has to do with all kinds of different categories, which start off with a handful of categories and over the years become, you know, sometimes 12, 13 hour long balls with, you know, an endless slew of really creative categories of all different sizes, stripes, and shapes. And so that way, the thing that's one of the things I love about the ball scene that's really different about the pageant world and the rest of drag today is that the ball scene kind of gives everybody in the community a way to use their talents and a place to earn a trophy and have a shot uh, no matter what your thing is, whether it's, you know, dressing up in military garb, whether it's creating like a space alien futuristic look, um, whether it's doing, you know, dips and stunts and flips, you know, the list is endless. Well, not endless, but the list is tremendous of all the different kinds of things that are included within a ball. And that's really different because that from a pageant. So for people who don't know how pageant works, pageants are usually now granted, there's a lot of variation, a lot of variation, but generally there's a few categories like presentation where you come out with maybe a mix uh, that reflects the theme and a costume that reflects the theme and uh, sometimes there's a lip sync involved in that sometimes there's not there's also uh, categories for modeling like formal wear or evening wear or sometimes sports wear or swimwear and then there's uh, always most of the time a talent category as well and sometimes there are other categories too like interview uh, which can sometimes be done out of drag sometimes in drag and Pageants can also be really exclusive in the sense that a lot of pageants exclude 
trans people from competing. They don't allow hormone, anyone who's taking hormones or anyone who has surgery below the neckline. There's this kind of concept in some parts of the drag world that somehow being trans is akin to juicing in sports in the world of pageants. And since we're about a half hour in, we'll save my feelings about that and the discussion of that and the history of that for another day. So pageants and balls are pretty different, but part of the big reason why I wanted to do this episode and really highlight this right now with something like Pose on the Air is to really take note of the fact that the balls came out of a space of politics. They came about for a political reason, and they came about because of racism within our community. And the idea that some people express sometimes that racism inside the gay community now is new is just not true. Um, it's a long-standing issue in our community. As long as America has had racism, we've had some racism in the gay community, and it especially spiked in the 50s and 60s, and it hasn't uh, really been dealt with in a lot of ways because we're still not really looking at the intersectional nature of our problems. We're not looking at why balls had to be created. That's why one of the reasons why I would like to, in a future podcast episode, talk to the creators and the people who were there at the founding of Gay Black Ohio, because that pageant system has been around for uh, 41 years, 42 years, something like that now. And I would like to know, you know, like, how did that come about? What is the history of that pageant system? Was racism in Cleveland uh, a big factor in the reason why that pageant system came into existence? But yeah, so I, I know it's a little heavy, but I would like to leave you with the idea of, you know, sort of examining the racism that you see around you within the queer world and trying to do what you can to fix that. Because if we can't acknowledge it as a real problem that has existed for a long time and still exists today, I don't know how we move forward as a community. So... That said, hopefully the next episode will be out sooner than the space between these first two. Pride Month kind of destroyed any ability I had to get extra work done outside of uh, day job stuff and drag. So that's it for me today. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to Untucking the Past. Uh, remember, you can always follow me on Facebook or Instagram at the Only Lady J. And you can check out my website, theonlyladyj.com, where you can follow this, uh, where you can download the episodes of the podcast. And you can download my dissertation for free from the Love Ball to RuPaul, the mainstreaming of drag in the 1990s. And um, feel free to, you know, say hey and send me a message through uh, untuckingthepast at gmail.com if you've got any questions or comments about the episode, past episodes, or uh, things you can do to help support. Thank you all so much for listening. See you next time on Untucking the Past. Oh.